0: Well, thank you. First, uh, Catherine and Wayne, thanks for inviting me here uh, this weekend. What a fabulous event. I hope I have an opportunity to, to come back again uh, next year. I, I will tell you, I was asked to talk a little bit about how you go about changing the world. How do you change the world? Well, I'll tell you, as I, I look out in the audience and, and I've had an opportunity to talk to a number of the delegates, I'm not really sure there's much I can tell you about that. All of you are already in the process of changing the world and changing the world for the better. but I will give you just a couple of points. On your road to success and on your road to greatness, there are going to be some things you control and some things you don't control. You know, you don't control those kind of sweeping hands of destiny that somehow will change your trajectory one way or the other. But you do control the little things in life that may, in fact, have a greater impact on your legacy than you expect. My favorite movie is the American classic, It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart. And for our UAE and and Saudi members that might be here, uh, Jimmy Stewart, famous American actor of the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, he plays a character named George Bailey. And George Bailey is a young man. He lives in the small town of Bedford Falls location, not told, but he lives in Bedford Falls. And George Bailey wants to go out and change the world. He wants to leave Bedford Falls and go do big things. But as time goes on in the movie, it doesn't happen. And George Bailey ends up staying in Bedford Falls. And he gets more and more frustrated. And and time goes by, and he never leaves Bedford Falls. And then eventually, George Bailey falls on hard times. And he decides to go into his life and jump off a bridge. And at that point in time, God sends an angel named Clarence to rescue George Bailey. And Clarence comes down, and he shows George what life would have been like had George never been born. And there's a great scene, my favorite scene in the movie, where Clarence takes George to the local town graveyard. And there is the tombstone of George's younger brother, Harry. And Harry, when he was about six years old, had fallen through the ice. And George, a little bit older, had saved his younger brother. And he looks at the tombstone. And, of course, the tombstone shows that Harry died when he was six years old. And and George begins to protest to Clarence. He says, that's not right. He said, Harry went on to win the Medal of Honor. He saved 500 men during World War II. And Clarence says, yeah, but you don't understand, George. You weren't there to save Harry, and Harry wasn't there to save the 500 men on that ship. That one small act of brotherly love that Harry showed George, that took George's life in a different direction, that caused George to save 500 men and all the families that went with that. Sometimes it's the small things. I remember when I was uh, in high school, I was trying to break the high school mile record. It was four minutes, 32.7 seconds. I remember it distinctly. (laughs) And I was having a lot of trouble. And I had come close a number of times, but just couldn't quite get past it. And I was coming up on my last uh, event, my last uh, track meet, and I got a call one night on a Thursday night. The track meet was on a Friday. I got a call from... Coach Jerry Turnbow. And Coach Turnbow had been the head coach at Roosevelt High School the year before. He'd left to go on to another high school. I didn't even think Coach Turnbow knew who I was. And he called me at home, and, uh, and I was stunned. I mean, this guy was a guy to me that lived on Mount Olympus. And he calls, and he says, uh, Bill, look, I understand you're trying to break the mile record. He said, look, just give it everything you got. Run as hard as you can. And if you've done that, you'll, you're going to be successful. Well, the next day I went out and I did, in fact, break the high school mile record. Now, nobody cared. Nobody but but me. And I will tell you, that phone call fundamentally changed my life because I realized that if I could work hard and break the high school mile record, what else could I go on to do? Could I, in fact, be a Navy SEAL? And so I look back on my life and I think about that one phone call and how it fundamentally changed everything about my life. 20 years later. I was now a Navy commander. I was home on leave, and my father, who always seemed to engage people in the strangest locations, had been at the barbershop, and he bumped into a fellow there. And uh, the fellow's son wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So my dad came home, and he said, hey, uh, I met this guy at the barbershop, and his son wants to be a SEAL. Can you, can you give him a call and talk to him? I said, sure, happy to do that. So I called and talked to the young man. He was a junior in high school, and I talked to him for about 45 minutes, talked to him about the pros and cons of being a SEAL. And then I never heard from the guy again. Until 18 years later, and we were in Afghanistan, and we were doing a hostage rescue mission. 62-year-old American had been taken by the Taliban, and he was uh, held in a, in a pretty strong point high up on a, on a mountain in the Hindu Kush. And the Navy SEALs went in, climbed up about 9,000 feet, uh, got into a pretty good firefight with the Taliban, and managed to save the 62-year-old American and return him to his wife. Well. The next day, the Navy commander who was in charge of the mission brought in the senior chief who was actually on the ground and ran it. And they came into my office, and both of them had kind of a funny look on their face, and the senior chief turned to me and said, Sir, you probably don't remember me, but 18 years ago you called me at home, and you told me what it was like to be a Navy SEAL, and I've been in the teams now for the last 15 years. Well, I went back and looked at his record. He had, in fact, won the Silver Star, and a number of bronze stars with valor. He had gone on to save a lot of people's lives, dozens, maybe hundreds of lives, through his acts. One phone call. One phone call changed my life. One phone call changed his life. Sometimes it's just simple acts of courage. My command sergeant major is a fellow named Chris Ferris. a command sergeant major is the senior enlisted that is with the commander uh, of an organization. Chris Ferris uh, served with the Delta Force during the famous uh, Black Hawk Down incident in Mogadishu. He fought in Bosnia, he fought in Kosovo, he fought in Iraq, he fought in Afghanistan, an incredible warrior. But he was a fairly personal fellow and and kept a lot of things inside. One day, we went to have an all-hands meeting with our soldiers and their spouses, and One of the spouses got up and said, look, I'm having a lot of difficulty with my husband. He's come back from Iraq. He's a changed person. He's not relating to me. He's not relating to the kids. Uh, I I just don't know what to do. And frankly, I, I didn't have an answer. And then Chris all of a sudden stood up, and he said, well, let me tell you, I've been having problems with my family for the last 20 years, And he began to give this story, this kind of raw, emotional story about his relationship with his wife and the difficulty he had with the kids. And before long, another wife stood up and said, I've got these problems as well. Chris went on, Chris and Lisa, his wife, went on to tell this story dozens of times over the next three years. And in the course of doing that, they saved hundreds, maybe thousands of lives as families came forward and talked about their problems and dealt with their problems as men and women that were going to commit suicide decided not to do that because they knew there was somebody there that cared about them that had gone through the same thing. With all the courage that he'd shown on the battlefield, that small act of courage changed everything. And finally, while I like to think I've had a fairly successful career in life, uh, and my father before me was fairly successful, he was a professional football player with the then Cleveland Rams back in the late 30s, went on to be a World War II fighter pilot, I will tell you, the the most accomplished McRaven was my grandfather. He was a country doctor in a place called New Madrid County uh, in Missouri. And he got his medical degree young. This was in the early uh, 1900s. And he got his medical degree and then promptly went off to serve in World War I in France. Spent three years in World War I, came back in 1918. And for the next 20 years, he served the people of New Madrid County. And then World War II broke out. And he went off and served in World War II and then came back and finished out his life serving in New Madron County. Now, the people of New Madron County are pretty poor. And they would come to Dr. Mack, and uh, they didn't have a lot of money, and he wouldn't accept anything. And sometimes they'd bring him chickens or eggs or a little piece of ham, and, uh, but he really didn't take anything from the people in New Madron County. And when he died, he didn't have much to his name, but 1,200 people came to his funeral. The children that he had brought into the world, the mothers and fathers that he had saved from the Great Depression and from the flu and from the fever, and his continuous acts of compassion saved thousands of lives. So my point is, on your way to greatness, there are going to be things that you control and things that you don't control. The little things that you can control, those small acts of encouragement of courage, of compassion, those small acts will invariably be your legacy and probably have a bigger effect on the world. With that, thank you very much. And I'll take a couple of questions. Uh, you have quite an inspiring story. So many of us here are millennials. And the right. millennial generation gets a bad rep for being entitled. Uh, and I was wondering if you could speak to what we should be doing as millennials to kind of change that reputation and then, in a leadership capacity, what you've done um, to be a leader of millennials. Yeah, I, I don't think you have to change anything. I think history will look back on the millennials and think that this was one of the greatest generations in the past 100 years. Uh, yes, yeah, sometimes you may get a bad rap, but I'll tell you, as I had an opportunity to work with the millennials that worked for me, the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines in particular, and the young civilians that joined me, uh, and they come in and they're different. You know, They were different than my generation. They had tattoos and earrings and, you know, listened to music that was different, and they were fabulous, absolutely fabulous. And I've said it before, you know, the talking heads a lot of times that we see on the news that that sometimes don't have an opportunity to deal with your generation, they don't have a clue. We are in such good shape. America has never been better than we are now with the generation that's coming up. Don't worry about anything. Don't change a thing. One more. This young man. Go ahead. Thank you for the inspiring talk. Um, As young people, we often have great ideas and uh, ideas that can change the world and the settings that we're in. But however, in the military, in the healthcare system, in the academic setting, there are a lot of people senior to us. And a lot of times they laugh at us and they don't listen to the ideas. How do you propose that we overcome those seniority barriers to bring these ideas before we too age and join the masses and the change becomes very little. No, uh, you know, that's a, it's a great question. In fact, I was uh, talking at, at breakfast earlier today. Uh, I have CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And when I was first diagnosed about five years ago, the military medicine folks said, hey, you need to, I was in Afghanistan, they said, you need to come back. We need to get your spleen taken out and we need to start you on chemotherapy. I was like, whoa, okay, I'm in the middle of a fight. And now I've got to go back and start another fight. And of course, I got back and had an opportunity to go to actually MD Anderson in Texas. And the doctor said, well, that's like medieval medicine. You know, we don't do that anymore. And so, frankly, I, I've kind of begun to partner some of the, uh, the civilian clinicians with the military clinicians. But your point is, you know, as a young officer or young NCO, uh, I will tell you, contrary to what a lot of people believe about the military, that it is so hierarchical that you can't break through. I haven't found that to be the case with great leaders. Dave Petraeus is out here. I worked for uh, General Petraeus a number of times. Uh, Phil Breedlove is going to talk to you later today. I mean, these are men and a number of women that I've worked for that are very receptive to the ideas that come up. You just got to keep pushing. I mean, the the earlier speaker talked about all the times he was turned down. And I, I don't think this is any different in the military than it is in the civilian world. If you have a good idea, don't ever give up on it. You just keep pushing. Start breaking down doors until somebody listens. And somebody will eventually listen. Um, But the merits of your idea and the power of your emotion and passion on it are going to have to carry the day.